The title of the message today is simply this, The King is Coming. You believe that? Say amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number one, and we'll be reading today about how we learn that the King is coming. The Bible is very clear on that. And beginning in verse number four of Acts chapter one, now here's Jesus on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after the resurrection. He's with his disciples. He's about to go up into heaven. And we read in verse number four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John, that is John the Baptist, truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, now notice what Jesus said in response to their question, it is not for you to know. Say that with me. It is not for you to know. You know what that tells me? It tells me that in life, there are some things God doesn't want us to know. We've all had times in life when we've asked God a question, God, why did I get cancer? God, why did my loved one die? God, why are there all these wars? Why is there so much anger and hatred and divisiveness and division? And God, why are are there these shootings in these schools and these other places? God, why? And yet God says to us what he said to those disciples many times, it is not for you to know. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Lord has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. While it is true that there are some things God doesn't want us to know, at least not now, maybe later on in the journey we'll learn the answer to those questions. Certainly in heaven we'll know, but there are some things God does want you to know. God wants you to know your purpose in life. And God wants you to know your source of power. Now, we know that our primary purpose in life is to know God in a personal way, to get saved and develop a relationship with Jesus. But also our purpose in life, here is, Jesus said, is to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, where you are, and beyond to everywhere in all the earth. And so our purpose is to take the gospel beyond the walls of this church to all the people who don't know Jesus Christ. Now, I think we have the mission statement uh, up there. I think that might be what's coming next, or there may be another slide. Let's see what's going to be coming next. The mission statement. We've been working on this for the last few weeks to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Let's say that together. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. I think that's kind of catching on. See if you can say it by yourselves. Ready? One of the reasons that God didn't take us to heaven right after we got saved is because he wants us to spend our remaining time on earth doing what? Helping all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. You say, now, John, why is that such a big deal? Why is it so important for us to devote our time and resources? And you've been talking about it a lot lately. Why is it so important for us to do this? Well, the answer to that question is because Jesus Christ is coming again. Look in verse number nine. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are two angels. And so now Jesus is being taken up into heaven. The disciples are watching this amazing sight as he's being engulfed now in a heavenly cloud. And verse 10, 
While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, these two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the angel said, why are you looking up and watching Jesus being taken back to heaven? Remember this, this same Jesus, the Jesus who is going up, will one day come right back down. This Jesus who is being taken from earth to heaven will one day be dispatched from heaven back to earth. Jesus is coming back. And the angels were saying to those disciples, in essence, the reason that Jesus has just told you to be witnesses to him here, there, and everywhere is because it is your job to prepare as many people as you possibly can for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The the same Jesus who went up, he is coming back to the earth. Now, as I think about that, and as I think about our responsibility to prepare as many people as we can for the second coming of Christ, I can't help but to think about the ministry of John the Baptist. I think most of us are familiar with John the Baptist. He was a cousin of Jesus, but more importantly, he was the one who announced to the world of his day, to the people in his sphere of influence, that they needed to get ready because the Messiah was about to come onto the scene. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter number one, we see a verse that tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so Joy, uh, John used his voice to say what? The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And once Jesus came on the scene, what did John the Baptist say? He said, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's entire life in ministry was for the sole purpose of announcing the arrival of Jesus Christ. So let's take that one step further and think about how it relates to us. Just like John the Baptist's job was to prepare people for the coming of Christ. That's what he did. Our job is to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. That, that is our mission. That is our job to announce to our family members, to our friends, and to anybody in our sphere of influence that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. You know, if you think about the first coming of Jesus... And the second coming of Jesus, the first coming in Bethlehem, the second coming we were just singing about when he leaves heaven and comes back to this earth, there are a lot of differences between those two comings. For example, when Jesus came the first time, he came in humility. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming in power and great glory. When Jesus came the first time, he came largely unnoticed by the people in his day. Many didn't even recognize him as the Christ. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming riding on the clouds, and the Bible says that every eye shall see him. When Jesus came the first time, he came for the purpose to save and to serve. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming to rule and to reign. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday for the first time, he rode into the holy city on the back of a, of a lowly, humble donkey, a young colt. But when Jesus comes back the second time and rides into the city of Jerusalem, he'll ride on the back of a victorious white horse. When Jesus came the first time, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was crucified. But when Jesus comes the second time, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And that's what those angels were saying. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why are you so fascinated with the fact that Jesus is being taken from you? Shouldn't your focus instead be on the fact that Jesus Christ on the appointed day is coming back to this earth and on that day, he will make all things right and he'll make all things new. Now, as I said, our job is to prepare people for his second coming. You know, back in the Middle Ages and even the early part of modern history, if a king was coming to a particular city for a visit, the people in that city, weeks and even months in advance, would prepare for the arrival of the king. They would get all the landscaping pretty. They would get the buildings and streets as clean and pretty as they could get it. So on the day the king came, the king could see the city at its best. Now, if the king had won a war and defeated the enemy, they would even make it a bigger deal. And it was even a greater celebration. They wanted to honor the arrival of the king. Now, think about us. as We're Christians. Our king is coming back to this earth. And not only is he coming back, he's coming back after having won a tremendous victory. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated Satan, he defeated death, he defeated hell, and he defeated the grave. And so when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a conquering king. And so what God has given us is a little advance notice. And God has said to us, hey, just like John the Baptist prepared the people for his first coming, you prepare people for his second coming. Make the announcement and let it be clear that the king is coming back to this earth. Now, as I've been thinking about this this week and, and thinking about what we're trying to do here at First Baptist, we're trying to reach 10% of our community for Jesus Christ. We'd love to reach 100% of our community, but I'm just saying it's a great goal to try to reach 15,000 people in our community for Jesus Christ. We know that God will not hold us responsible for the numbers. That's his business. Success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by being obedient to Christ. But God still wants us to have a vision and a dream and a goal. And so we're praying for that and, and we're going to be working for that. But I've been thinking, how can we with, with these people, hopefully you've taken one of these cards, the reach out cards that has a picture of a hand and you've been able to identify five friends. It took me longer than I thought it would to identify five people to pray for, but I did. I got my list, and then somebody even texted me after a service and said, John, could you add a family member of, of this person's to my... So I've got six people on my list, and I'm praying for these people, and I hope you're doing that too. But there's going to come a point where we have to do more than pray where we have to actually say something to them about God, where we have to invite them to church, maybe share our faith in Christ, maybe lead them to be saved. And so as we think about how can we do that, how can we say something to somebody that could influence them for Jesus Christ, I've got three words today, three adverbs that I think answer the question of how we can do that. What's it going to take to to effectively reach out into our community and reach people for Christ. Well, the first thing, now certainly it's going to take honesty and we have to present the gospel, invite them to church, all that. But in addition to the obvious, what is it going to take? It's going to take kindness. Our first adverb there is kindly. How do we reach these people? We reach them kindly. Now, I am of the belief and the conviction and the concern that kindness is becoming a disappearing quality in the world today. I just don't see 
kindness. In fact, I read an article a couple of weeks ago by Andy Stanley, pastors of a great church in North Atlanta, and he said that in his opinion, the church, he's talking about the church, not his church, but the church in the general, he's saying that he believes the church is in a state of emergency. And I have been feeling this myself for a long time, not talking about First Baptist Church, talking about the church globally and certainly the church nationally, that the church is in a state of emergency. And one of the reasons that Andy gave for that and one of the reasons that I have felt this for so long, and he didn't say it this way, but this was the spirit of what he was saying. He was saying that even in the church today, what's happening is instead of us building bridges to the unsaved, we're building walls. Now, he didn't use that terminology. That's my terminology, but I think that's, that is what's happening. If we're going to reach unsaved people, we have to learn to build a bridge to that person's life. Now, before I get into this, turn to chapter 17 of Acts. Paul gives us an example of how he was a bridge builder. Paul, let me say this, never compromised the truth of God's Word And he never compromised the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. He never backed down on that, and neither can we. But Paul was smart enough to know that God didn't just put him on the earth to, quote, take a stand. You know, I think many Christians today have the idea that their job is to take a stand and to say it straight and to never back down. Well, we should take a stand, and we should say it straight, and we we should never back down. But if we do that with meanness instead of kindness, then we're building a wall instead of building a bridge. Now, in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, Greece, and it says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And so even though their religions were false and wrong, he started out by trying to build a bridge. He didn't but notice what he says. He says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then look what he says. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And so Paul is using not only conviction here, but he's using kindness and he's using wisdom. And he's saying, as I've been around the whole city of Athens today, I've seen all these altars of worship. The Greeks back in this time, they had altars to worship every god, the sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, fertility. They just made up all these gods, these Greek gods and goddesses. And Paul knew there was nothing to that. Paul knew that that wasn't real, but he didn't go into their city and say, hey, I notice all these altars y'all have built, and I just want you to know it's all a bunch of bogus and you're all going to hell. He didn't say that. He was trying to not build a wall, but to build a bridge. He said, I noticed with all these altars that y'all have that y'all are very religious. You're a very religious group. Well, that was kind of a kind thing for Paul to say, and it was true. And then he said, you've even got this one altar to the unknown God. He said, you're worshiping a God. You don't even know who he is because you don't want to leave any of the gods out. And he, so he used that as his platform to do what? To build a bridge. And he said, the one you don't know is the one I do know and I want to tell you about him. And so that was Paul's introduction to preach to the people in Athens, Greece, about Jesus. He did it warmly, and he did it with kindness. Now, kindness, again, I'm afraid, is just dissipating largely even amongst us, the Christian community. Ephesians 4.32, notice the importance of kindness. Notice what it says here, and be kind to one another. Say that with me, and be kind to one another. Say it again. 
Turn to the person next to you and say, and be kind to me. <laughs> Kindness. And then what it says, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Notice know, kindness, tenderhearted, forgiving, loving, overlooking offenses, not holding grudges, just being kind. It's very important. And did you know that kindness is very important when it comes to inviting people to church and it's very important when it comes to talking to them about Christ. Did you know that kindness, from a biblical perspective, is so important that the Bible says it was God's kindness, in part, that led to our salvation? Look at Romans chapter 2 and in verse 4. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Why did you and I get saved? Well, certainly because Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and so on. But when the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sins, he did it with kindness. Think about this. After you sinned for the first time, God didn't just zap you and send you to hell. No, God was patient. God gave you a second chance. God gave me a third chance. God gave us as many chances. God gave us multiple chances to respond to the gospel and be saved. He was patient. He was kind. And it dawned on us when we were convicted of the Holy Spirit, not only were we sinners in need of, of a Savior, not only did Christ die to be our Savior, but it dawned on us that God loves us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. And so it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance that led us to be saved. Now think about this. If God used kindness with us to bring us to Christ, how can we hope to bring others to Christ unless we too use kindness? You say, John, why do you think kindness is, is dissipating? Why is kindness disappearing? Well, I think what's happening in the world today as our world has become more polarized and, and, and we're just, you know, the, the views are so different from, from say, Christians and, and many, not all non-Christians, but many non-Christians, our views are so differently that we so badly want to take a stand and stand by our convictions. And that's all right, and we should. But if we're not careful, we can do it without kindness, and we're not going to be effective. Let's put this, screen on, this thing on the screen. This came to me last week, and I want you just to consider this. If your convictions aren't wrapped with kindness you will repel more people from Christ than you will ever attract to Christ. And so it's not enough to have our convictions. Think, think about our convictions, now, our convictions on abortion, our convictions on gay marriage, our convictions on all these social issues. Why do we have the convictions that we have? We have the convictions we have because our convictions are rooted in the Bible. But the people we're trying to reach they don't necessarily believe the Bible. They've never read the Bible. They don't even know what the Bible says or teaches. And so if all we do is go to them and say, you're wrong and I'm right, while that statement may well be true, and it is true on some of the issues, certainly it's true, but that's not going to win them to Christ. We've got to have kindness if we're going to hope to win the people to Jesus Christ. Now, what are our core beliefs as Christians? Well, the two that come to my mind, there are a lot of them, but the two that come to my mind first, we as Christians, and maybe you're not even a Christian today, you say, now, what do you Christians believe? Well, first of all, we believe that the Bible, now listen to these words I'm going to use, is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God. We believe that this book is not a book of human opinion. 
This is the very word of God. God inspired people to write the words that are in this Bible. From the first book verse in Genesis to the last verse in Revelation, everything the Bible says is true. This is the word of God. There are no errors. If my Bible says genuine leather, I believe the leather is genuine. I believe the maps in the back are inspired. I believe everything in this book is the Word of God. This is, so, so my beliefs are all rooted in this book. The second thing we believe, and we believe the second thing because we believe the first thing, is that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's not one road among multiple roads. He is the only road. He is the only way to heaven. Now, let's just play like we're sitting around in a circle. I'm in the circle, and you're in the circle. We are the designated Christians in the circle. But in our circle, we have a Muslim, we have a Buddhist, we have a Hindu, we have a Jew, and we have an atheist. And there we are in our circle. And there's a moderator who's asking questions, and the moderator says, I want to ask, this is going to be interesting to me, the moderator says, all these religions represented here, how do each of you believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And the atheist speaks up and says, well, I don't believe there is a heaven, I don't believe there is a God. And so we say, okay, well, you're out of this conversation. He doesn't even believe in any of that. And so the Muslim is asked, how do you believe that a person goes to heaven when, when they die. And that Muslim may say it in different ways, but that Muslim is going to say, well, the first thing we need that a person needs to do would be to convert, convert to Islam, accept the teachings of Allah, follow the instructions of Muhammad. But if you really press the Muslim faith and say, okay, but how is it that you believe you're going to be admitted into heaven? What the, if you really press that, what they would say, we believe at the end of it all, we will stand before Allah in heaven and he has the divine scales. And if our good deeds have outweighed our bad deeds, we've done more good than we've done bad, then Allah will let us into heaven. And so that's, that's kind of their teaching. And so that's their answer. So the Jew, to the Jew, how do you believe as a Jew that you go to heaven? Well, first you must become Jewish. And then you must keep the teachings of the law as revealed in the Old Testament. And they would just say their Bible. And so at the end of life, if you have done that and done the best you can to keep the Old Testament law, the Bible law, they would say, then God will admit you into heaven. And so you ask all these different religions, what do you believe? And then finally, they come over there to me and you, and, and we're the Christians. And they say, you're a Christian. How do you believe you go to heaven? And... Uh, I look to you and say, you go ahead and answer that question. And you say, no, you're the preacher. You answer that question. And I say, okay, I'll answer that question. I say, well, this has been interesting, listening to all these different answers. And it is true that I'm a Christian. And it is true that I believe the Bible. And here's what the Bible teaches. And here's what I believe. I believe that the only way a person can go to heaven is by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's why I believe that. Because out of everything that's been discussed today and all these other religions of the world, only Jesus Christ has taken care of the sin problem. Only Jesus Christ has made provision for the sin problem. If it weren't for Jesus, we would kind of be like what we've been hearing. We would be hoping that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. But even if our good outweighs our bad, we still have the bad and those bad deeds still would have to be forgiven, but only in Christ's death on that cross in the shedding of his blood is there a provision for our sins to be forgiven. And so I believe you go to heaven through Jesus. And so the interviewer, the moderator would say, now, Mr. Edmund, do you believe that you can only go to heaven 
through Jesus. Isn't that closed-minded or narrow-minded? I would say, well, I do believe that it is only through Jesus. And there is a sense, I see what you're saying, that that is closed-minded or narrow-minded. You know, I, I would say that. But I would say, remember now, all truth is narrow. You know, Austin is the capital of Texas, not San Antonio, not Houston, not Dallas. It's Austin. If I'm on an airplane and that plane is coming down and that, that, uh, that pilot is looking at the, at, the, at the dashboard, as we would call it there, and all those instrument panels, and the, he's got the little, that's lined up on the cross, and if I'll stay straight, that's where I'm, the, the runway is. I hope that my pilot is narrow-minded. I hope he doesn't just say the runway's down there somewhere, and we're going to just try to find it. All truth is narrow. And so, you know, it is true that there's a certain amount of narrowness to it, but if I'm in a burning building and the fireman comes in and says, hey, there's only one way out, I don't look at that fireman as being narrow-minded. I look at that fireman as being honest and telling me the only way for my life to be saved is to come out that one door. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is that one door, and he's the only way out of here. And he has made provision for us. And I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would say, if I could keep talking just for a second, she would say, you're a preacher. We figured you would. I would say this, as far as it being narrow-minded, when you use the word narrow-minded, there is a sense in which truth is narrow, but there are some people who have the idea that Christianity is discriminatory. But remember this, Christianity discriminates against no one. The scripture says, Jesus said, whosoever will may come to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes. If Jesus had said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whichever white people believe, then they can be saved. Well, that would be discriminatory to everybody who's not white. Or if it said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whichever black people believe, well, that would be discriminating against the others. But it doesn't say black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever. And so, no, Christianity is not discriminatory. There, here's what I would say. There is one road to heaven, but anybody is welcome to travel that road. And I hope when I said that, that I would say it with passion, certainly, like I'm, but I also hope I would have kindness. And what I, again, what I'm concerned about is that in our, even amongst Christians, we've lost our kindness and we're just hunkered in on building up these walls and, quote, taking our stand, and yet our convictions are not wrapped with kindness. And as a result, we're not attracting people to Jesus Christ as, as, as God would have us to do. You know, I've learned this in life. If you've got the truth on your side, you don't have to yell a lot. I mean, you've got the truth on your side. You know, I remember when I first became a preacher, 18 years old, it was 34 years ago today that I surrendered my life to preach, and God started opening doors for me to preach after that. My brother used to go with me, all the country churches through East Texas that I got to preach at, and here's what he would say about me. Somebody would say, is your brother a good preacher? Here's what Joel would say. He would say, well, you know, here's the deal on John. What he lacks in content, he makes up for in volume. And that was his way of saying, you know, if he's got a sermon that's not really good, he'll just yell loud enough and make you think it's good. Well, I think that's what's happened in our culture today. There's a lot of sound and fury, but there's not a lot of kindness and truth. And I read last week in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 that we've been called to speak the truth, never back down from the truth, but to speak the truth with love. 
and you can't separate these, those two things from each other. So the first way we're going to reach our community is with kindness. The second adverb I would give, not only kindly, but we reach our community and we reach the unsaved humbly. We have to have a certain humility about us. In other words, our message to the unsaved and the unchurched is not, hey, come become like me or come become like us. That is not our message. Our message is come meet who we've met. Come receive the forgiveness we've received. Come experience the peace we have found. Come begin the journey that we have begun. And when we talk to the unsaved about the Lord, we can't, we cannot. We have to, we have to go the other extreme to make sure we're not sending out a message that we have arrived or that we've got it all together. Folks, I don't care how much we love God. I don't care how long we've been saved. We are still living in bodies of flesh, and we are still sinful human beings. And when we talk to the unsaved, we have to help them know, hey, I'm not perfect. I still mess up way too many times. I still sin too much, but I have found in Christ forgiveness, and I have found in the Holy Spirit a helper who helps me not to sin as much as I used to. But when I do sin, he forgives me and he cleanses me and he helps me to know that, that my sin is not the end, but that I can move on down the road with God. And so we need humility. And then we need to, to share Christ genuinely. That's the third adverb today, genuinely. Just honestly share with others what Jesus Christ means to you. You know, if I were talking to somebody, I would say, you know what? For many years in my life, I didn't have peace I didn't have the real assurance of my salvation. I used to wonder what would happen to me when I died. I was scared to death at the thought of death. But then finally I came to Jesus. I asked him to forgive me and save me. And then I trusted him to do that. I trusted Jesus with all my heart. I trusted his blood to wash my sins away. And as a result of my putting my faith in the blood of Christ, I have such peace in my heart. And I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I know my sins are forgiven. And I just have a peace and a joy. I'm still not perfect. I still sin. I still mess up. But I just, I know in my heart that, 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 that it is well, as the song says, in my soul because of my faith in Jesus Christ. It's just genuine. You don't have to prepare for that or be educated in college or university to share that. You just share out of your heart. Now, you know, we're we're talking about reaching all these people for Christ and we're seeing people get saved most every week. Even in the first service today, a gentleman was saved and hopefully today in this service in a few minutes, people will be saved as well. But as we think about reaching 10% of this community, that is we're living in a community probably within a five mile radius of our church. If there are 150,000 people, I mean, who knows the exact numbers, but maybe on a, like on a day like today, I think it's safe to say probably 120,000 of those, maybe 130,000 of those don't go to church or are probably not in church today. And I say that based on if you took all the churches, not just the Baptist, but all the churches in, a, in our area and added it up, you're still not going to get to 20 or 30,000 people. So this is, we're talking about over, well over 100,000 people. And God has left us here to let them know that Jesus is coming and we need to do everything we can to bring them to Christ. Again, we're praying for our five people and, and uh, hopefully under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, kindly and humbly and genuinely, we can reach out, invite them to church and share Christ with them. I wanna close today by reading a, a little article out of a magazine that I came across when I was in seminary. It's been a long time ago, but I've held on to this article all these years. It's called Passing It On. And it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make today that when we kindly, humbly, and genuinely reach out to others, 
We never know how God might use that to bring them to Christ and for their salvation. But we also don't know what God might end up doing through that person as they might even start bringing more and more of their friends to church. It could really be a, a snowball effect. And that's what I'm thinking in my heart is going to happen at First Baptist, a snowball effect. Listen to the article. Sunday school, a Sunday school teacher was concerned about a 19-year-old shoe clerk who wasn't a Christian. Ezra Kimball found the young clerk in the back room of his shoe store in Boston and led him to Jesus. But when the young man tried to join the church, he was turned down because he knew too little about the Christian faith. A year later, the church received him into its membership. His name was Dwight L. Moody. God called Moody to preach, and he became one of history's most effective evangelists. Moody's popularity and effectiveness in America grew. Soon, his fame spread to Europe, and he was invited to England to preach. Preaching one day in the church of a cultured theologian, Frederick Meyer, Moody, quote, murdered the king's English and told too many deathbed stories. But he preached with such feeling that Meyer's heart was stirred. Meyer later testified that on that day, for the first time in his life, he learned the language of the soul. In other words, he knew this Moody was, was talking out of his heart what Christ had done for him. Later, Meyer left England and came to the United States for a series of evangelistic meetings. In one service where he preached, there sat a discouraged young minister. As the great English preacher spoke, the Holy Spirit deeply stirred the heart of Wilbur Chapman, the discouraged preacher. It was a turning point for Chapman, later destined to become one of America's outstanding evangelists. As God blessed Chapman's ministry, he began to search for someone to assist him. Finally, he chose a young man who had been a professional baseball player and was then working at the YMCA. The young fellow only had a high school education, but what he lacked in training, he made up for in zeal. He was saved in 1886, dedicated himself fully to the Lord, and became the greatest evangelist since Dwight L. Moody. Billy Sunday was his name. And it is said that he led more than a million people to Christ. In 1924, Sunday held a great revival meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a moving thing, one that made a great impact on the city. When the Depression struck America a few years later, some Christians in Charlotte began to pray that God would send another revival like the 1924 Charlotte revival to lift the nation out. Now listen to this, out of spiritual and economic depression. This is in 1924. We're living in 2022 this is almost a hundred years later. Think about this, and I'll finish this article. A hundred years ago in our country, there was a spiritual drought and there was an economic depression. And these people in Charlotte who had experienced this great revival under the ministry of Billy Sunday, what did they do? They began to pray and they began to call on God. And they said, God, send a revival. God, bring us out of this spiritual drought we're in. And God, do something for our economy. And I, I read that and I thought, God, that's where we are today in America. We are in a spiritual desert and we're in an economic mess. 
But what we need to do is call on God. Friend, let me remind you today that as Christians, we don't look to Washington. We look to heaven to meet our needs and solve our problems. And that's what this group of people, they got together and began to pray for revival. They weren't praying for a president. Listen, I want to say this today. I want it to be clear. Our ultimate hope, I'm not saying it doesn't matter who the president is. Of course it matters. But our ultimate hope is not in a president. Our ultimate hope is in a soon coming king. And we have to look beyond these political offices and we have to look to heaven. And that's what they began to do. And here they are 100 years ago in Charlotte. God send a revival. You did it before through Billy Sunday. God sent another revival. In answer to their prayers for revival, God sent Mordecai Ham to Charlotte. An old-time preacher, Ham delivered his fire and brimstone messages telling folks that heaven is sweet and hell is hot. That's what it was like 100 years ago when you went to church. Among those who came regularly to hear Ham preach was a teenage boy who had his heart set on becoming a professional baseball player. When he couldn't get away from Ham's straightforward preaching, the young man joined the choir so he wouldn't have to look the preacher in the face. Now, in this service, you're in trouble. We don't have a choir, and so you got to look me in the face. But the Holy Spirit would not turn loose of a young Billy Graham. God deeply stirred Graham's heart. And when he was saved, God saved the man who would preach to more people in more languages and in more parts of the world than any person who ever lived. Little did Ezra Kimball know the chain of events he was setting in motion when he led Dwight L. Moody to Jesus in that shoe store back in 1855. And little do we know what chain of events we may be setting in motion when we lay our hand on a friend's shoulder. Listen to how this article says it. And gently, we might say, and kindly, and humbly, and genuinely, and gently lead him or her to the Savior. Telling a friend what Jesus means to us is something each of us can do. We don't need a seminary education to share our joy in Jesus with a friend. That friend may be a roommate or someone who lives down the hall or across the street. Perhaps it is someone who sits by you in class. But whoever it is, he or she is there waiting to be introduced to our friend. You may not be able to preach or sing or play a musical instrument. But there is something you can do. You can give your faith away. And then this little poem to end it. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, I will do. And I'm telling you, what we ought to do as Christians who have been left on this earth for this season is to do everything within our power to help all of our family and all of our friends and all of our coworkers and all the people we go to school with and everybody in our circle of influence to help them know that as bad as things may be in the world, in the nation, and in their own life, that we don't go through it with no hope. We stand awaiting the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if they'll confess their sins and receive Christ, they can be saved and end up in heaven with the rest of us. Amen. And so, Father, today, as we think about John the Baptist 
and how he devoted his life to preparing people for the coming of Christ. Father, I pray that we will devote the remainder of our lives to his second coming and to preparing people for his arrival. With your head bowed and eyes closed, you say, John, I'm not a preacher. I'm not not an evangelist. I can't get up here and sing like this praise team or do what Chris, I can't do any of that. No, that may be true. But I'll tell you what we can all do. We can all pray for unsaved people to be saved and we can all do our part to invite them to church and to share with them what Jesus Christ means to us. Would you ask God today to strike a match in your heart, to light a fire in your spirit for unsaved people? And as you pray for that, would you pray for our country, what we've prayed in this room so many times through the years? Would you pray for a fresh moving of God's spirit in our midst? that we would look beyond government and beyond politicians and say our hope, our ultimate hope can't be there. Our hope is in a king, the only king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming back. And we need to do everything we can until he does to prepare people for his arrival. Would you pray for a revival in our country? God, I pray for that. I pray it would begin in me. And God, I pray as I pray for revival, I wouldn't look down on my nose at somebody who I think needs it more than I do because that's not even true, first of all. God, I need a revival. This church needs a revival. This community needs a revival. God, our nation needs a revival, and so does our world. And I pray it would begin in me. And I pray, God, that you give us the wisdom and the discretion to go out and, and to speak truth and to never back down from Bible truth or Bible teaching. But God, show us how to do it kindly and humbly. Show us how to be genuine, not artificial. God, I pray that you would do something in our midst, in our day, very similar to what you did in Charlotte, North Carolina, back in the 1920s when that group of people was praying. With your head bowed and eyes closed, as I think about those prayer meetings in Charlotte 100 years ago, 98 years ago, so much has changed in the world since then. The people have changed. They've all died. They've gone to eternity, one one location or another. Now we're here. The world has changed. Problems, issues have changed. But the one thing that hasn't changed is God. And he's still on his throne and he's still listening. And the heart of God is to send that revival and to do a fresh work. But it begins when we take seriously our role in that. Now with your head bowed and eyes closed, if you say, John, you're talking about a revival for the unsaved. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't have that full peace or that assurance that you described, and I want that, and I need that. Friend, let me help you have that right now. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned in my life, and I am sorry. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you somehow, Lord, to take that blood that Jesus shed on that cross and apply it to my heart and to my sins and wash my sins away. God, I thank you that you've been patient with me. I thank you, God, that you've been kind. And today you led me to this service. You've not given up on me. And I thank you, God, that today is the day of my salvation. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person you want me to be.